before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 82. As always, join me the three amigos. We got Rich Diaz of Acorn and Macro Consulting, Keith Dicker of Icecap Asset Management. The Don, he's back in the blue room. Me? No, no. Keith. Am I the blue room? Yeah. Keith, are, those your mom's, are those your mom's glasses? So, people who are listening and not watching, uh, I had to go to the optometrist yesterday. So, they had to dilate my pupils. Do you know they ever get that done? And then when you leave, they give you these these huge like Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator glasses to wear outside because it's so bright. So I I, I go for I'm, I'm going to do an experiment here. So I go to the coffee shop with these things on, and I'm thinking, what's the re- what's the reaction going to be? And this is a compliment to, you know, today's society. I go in there and. Oh my God, people, first of all, they thought I was blind. They're trying to help me through the place. <laughs> but there's everyone's super nice to me, talking to me. And I'm thinking, back when I was a kid, if someone did this, you know, they would be got like like dork, nerd, geek. You know, there would have been no one helping out. But anyway, I did get through the the optometrist meeting, and I'll have new glasses coming up uh, pretty soon. But you're that's the start new, of my week. You're gonna be Rich. a new man. Rich, maybe you go borrow these if you go on a date sometime. Yeah. Well, I could do, but uh, for me, how am I doing? Well, today is the best day of the year. It's May the 4th. Be with you. It's Star Wars Day. Know. Yes. Dun, it's Star dun, Wars dun, Day. Total geek dun, alert dun, dun, dun. here, right? Just uh, uh, really. We're going to switch things really up today. We're going to spend the entire hour talking about which is our favorite character from Star Wars. No, we're not going to do that today. Um, no, Star Wars Day. That's the only thing I have to say. The other thing is uh, Canadian icon Gordon Lightfoot died. Um, and he's very popular. I'd never heard of it, his music, really. I know he were meant to all love him because he's a Canadian icon. So I spent the whole week going through his Spotify album. And I, I really don't like his music. It's very boring. But he is a Canadian Whoa, icon. Talk about so I figured friend we- like that. Really? That's right. Uh, Keith and Gordon Lightfoot went to high school together, so I'm sorry, Keith, about that. And um, and uh, but yeah, so there you go. That's that's all I got to say. Otherwise, it's pretty loads of loads of good stuff to talk about today. So there you go. Wow. Well, I do remember we're in school. We actually learned the uh, you know the the Lightfoot song, the 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 wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Do you guys yep. do that? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm impressed. That's yeah, good. of course. Yeah. Yeah. Steve is just Steve is like deer in headlights right now. Yeah. No. I had no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Have you heard of the tragically hip? Do you know those guys? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Couple, We're getting a bit good closer. Tunes. Tragically <laughs> hip. Big yeah. in the hockey room. That's right. Um, well, I mean, we've got uh, you know, well, quite a bit to get through this week. We've got uh, some updates um from several central banks, including the the Fed, of course, uh, which we'll get into some news from TD Bank. Uh, of course, the housing front as well, getting a lot of questions about what's going on in that front. I uh, just, just got back from uh, Myrtle Beach where we blew some uh, blew some heads there on, on uh, about the Canadian housing market. I uh, just gave a <laughs> you speech did what? To, to a whole bunch of Americans and 
Yeah, that's going to be a tough... Uh, someone have to edit that out, eh? <laughs> Just going to have to edit we, that so out. Where'd you go? We go so where'd you go? Edit that one out, you buddy. You don't <laughs> yeah. Okay. My wife was there, I promise. Uh, yeah, we... Uh, Man, I think I have to redo this. This this is just uh, this is bad. Anyways, um, yeah, the Americans were were awestruck by the what's happening in the Canadian housing market. Let's put it that way. And um, you know, I had to explain these interest deferrals that are going on, and you know, people didn't have to pay their mortgages for six months. So, anyways, but uh, we're we're here now, and the Vancouver and Toronto housing market uh, continues to. To push higher, uh, really against all odds, it is. It is. You know, it certainly has surprised myself this year, and I'm sure you guys on the on the podcast. But you know, looking through some of the the Vancouver data and Toronto data, which we got out uh, this week, we'll get the national data. I think in a week and a half from now. But anyways, um, Vancouver wise, it's the same same story, which is new listings came in at their lowest levels in 20 years. So outside of April of 2020 which was when the world was like literally shutting down and like people were like locked into their houses. Um, it was the fewest number of listings for the month of April since uh, 2003. Inventory is at all time lows with data that we have going back to 2005. Sales are now picking up uh, still below sort of like longer term 10 year averages. But basically what, what I suffice to say, essentially what's happening in the Vancouver market is prices 100% are pushing higher across all segments. Um, and it, I, to me, it feels much more than a seasonal aberration. I think that this is four months now that this has been going on. And so, I don't know, I think four months, I'm, I'm prepared to call it a trend. I think that we are trending higher. And uh, similar thing in the GTA. So if we look at the GTA, we had some some data coming out here. You know, if you look at uh, you know number of home sales, so if you seasonally adjust home sales between March to April, uh, sales jumped twenty seven percent on a seasonally adjusted basis. That's the biggest monthly increase uh, over the past two decades. So sales activity is roaring back again. It's still below long term averages, but that that's as one would expect if you've got 20-year lows, again, in, in listings and inventory in the GTA, naturally, you'd expect uh, volumes are going to be lower. But prices have now been moving higher for four consecutive months in the GTA as well. And uh, yeah, I'll go first, Rich. Um, Steve, what's happening with mortgage rates and financing? Uh, beat me. <laughs> that was my question. <laughs> I knew. That's why I want to go ahead of you. <laughs> uh, with, with financing? I honestly, things are like, I, I would say banks are like a little bit tighter, but like for the most part, like it's not that hard to get a mortgage. I don't think a whole lot's changed. I mean, it's obviously more challenging to qualify at a stress test of 7%, but you know, your mortgage rates have basically been range bound since October, I'm going to say. Like we've pretty much been chopping sideways, you know, give or take 20 or 30 basis points. We've been just, you know, your five-year mortgage rate has been about 4.8, 4.9 for the last six plus months. And and so, you know, and like I said, we're seeing a lot of people going three-year mortgage rates. That seems to be sort of the best priced mortgage out there. You know, you can get a three-year today at about 4.8. So you're seeing a lot of people go with this shorter duration term and obviously hope that uh, mortgage rates are are lower two to three years from now. So walk me through, let's just say uh, 
say Rich and I show up, you know, in Kitsilano, knock on your door, and we have no, we have like a minimum down payment available to buy something. So walk us through what's the minimum that we can use, and you know what is like what kind of monthly outflow would we need to buy okay. something? Well, I mean, I think like you know, obviously house in Kitsilano Prime, like I mean, your decent house, you're going to be three million bucks. Uh, so it's 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 a luxury market. So nobody's coming into like that market on like a local income that they've been saving for 15 years and put, they're putting down 20% and they're leveraging, you know, 80% loan to value. Like nobody is doing that in that market. I would say it's very much like an equity rich market. And so people always ask like the biggest, I think misconception, at least in Vancouver and Toronto, which I would call global markets um, where reality is, is you are dealing with people that are looking to come over here and park their cash Um and 50% of the mortgages on that West side detached market are mortgage free. There's a lot of equity that's in the system. And so like, it's basically the people that are transacting in that market are, are, are very, they're wealthy people or, or they're, 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 the parents are wealthy and they're handing their kids a large inheritance money basically. And that's really who's transacting in that market. So like, I know we always look at like priced income, priced income, like what can locals afford? It's like, the reality is, is like the locals, nobody's actually saving in my experience. I haven't seen people like I've been saving for 15 years. Like you just don't see that. And what about the rest of us? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's that. I think that is kind of like the sad reality, which is where the country is and where the housing market has reached these stratospheric levels is I think that, uh, you're you're out in the suburbs somewhere. Um, you're relocating. You know you're going to Alberta or you're renting. You're you're here and you're renting and you're, you're a high income earner, but you're renting. Are you seeing the transaction volumes and and the listings and stuff pick up in Calgary, which is a market you know relatively well, and and or is it is it more of the same or? Yeah, I mean it's funny. You know the benchmark price in uh, Calgary actually just hit an uh, an all time high. Uh, last last month, so in, in April there, so that prices are still pushing higher there. Now keep in mind, like that market basically went sideways for a decade. Uh, so while Vancouver and Toronto were ripping, like basically doubling in price, that Calgary market went sideways from about 2007 till about yeah, about uh, 2016, 17 ish. So. It went sideways for a long time. So I think it's just, I, I know people go, oh, it's hitting new all-time highs. It must be a bubble. It's like, I, I don't share that view at all. Um, okay. what, what about like, what's the highest loan to value that someone can get? If you're under a million bucks, you can go up to uh 95% loan to value. So it isn't, so 5% down, right? And that's CMHC? CMHC, covered. yeah. Federal government yeah. will basically insure your mortgage. Do you pay the insurance premiums or does the federal government pay the insurance? Like how does you that... pay the, you pay the insurance premium. So it does get so tacked it's, on. So it's a clip on top of your mortgage. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. These are, I just don't actually, they basically add the premium onto like your mortgage balance. Okay. So, um, yeah, but I mean, speaking of, uh, you know, CMHC just, uh, I mean, yeah, like obviously the housing system's pretty broken here. We've talked about it quite a bit. Interestingly enough, we saw an article from, uh, Rosenberg, out this week, um, basically denouncing what we've been talking about in the show. So maybe he's maybe he's listening in. 
But um, talking about immigration, and and, and uh, I'll just read you the quote here from from Rosenberg. So maybe just explain who David Rosenberg is. Because I mean, I would call David Rosenberg the, I think one of the more respected or well known economists in Canada. He was pretty famous. I guess he got famous for what Keith during the subprime crisis. I think he called the U.S. housing bubble relatively early. Uh, he's had a, a lot of success. He's very well regarded in, in the industry. Uh, you know, he's a Canadian boy. Uh, he was down in New York for a long time with, I think it was with Merrill Lynch. He was with Merrill Lynch. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, when, when Merrill blew up then in, you know, 08, 09, it, you know, everything disintegrated that Merrill. Um, you know, David then came back up to Canada and he, he joined one of the, uh, one of the, one of the larger, you know, old school Canadian by side firms uh he's with those guys for a while and then he uh he, he jumped out on on his own maybe i'm thinking two years ago maybe something like that but he, he's been around a, a long time and uh it's just an outstanding economist really great views great conversationalist and, and he's well respected you know so uh that's who david rosenberg is or rosie is they call him yeah thank you for that <laughs> So I'll give you I'll give you the quote here. So this is uh, this is from his note, Breakfast with Dave. I think he also wrote an op-ed in the Financial Post, but uh, it says the BOC seems unlikely to raise rates again, which means the CMHC has to grow the stones to start to tighten mortgage credit and soften demand pressures through non-price rationing of available loans. Sorry, bankers, and Ottawa should seriously consider a less ambition, less ambitious immigration policy, which is doing more harm than good at this point. A nation where folks in their 30s are crowded out of the housing market because of an elongated period of excessive home price inflation that is the result of federal government policy is not a very happy nation. And this will all come out in the wash at the next election. And if I were in opposition, this is the card I would be playing. Justin Trudeau aided and abetted among the most onerous onerous housing affordability conditions the country has ever faced with ill effects on society at large. So he's grown a bit more optimistic, it seems like, hearing that. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sarcasm. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a lot about what we've been talking about. But, you know, just to kind of like add to that point, there was a and then we'll kind of wrap up the housing frontier and move on. But I wrote a piece uh, on my sub stack there last week. But, uh, you know, talking about all the demand side stuff that we've tried to do to kind of cool the, the the this nation's housing market. I'll give you a quick list, and a lot of this only, I, I guess, a lot of this pertains to the two large cities of Vancouver and Toronto. But over the last five plus years, here's what we've done: we've done a foreign buyer tax, a mortgage stress test, a BC speculation tax, an empty homes tax in Vancouver and Toronto, rent controls in Vancouver and Toronto, expanded the mortgage stress test, increased the foreign buyer tax again. Then we created an outright foreign buyer ban. Then we increased interest rates by 400 basis points in 12 months. And then we created a new tax called the underutilized housing tax. And uh, despite all of these policy measures, while I agree some of them might lack some teeth, uh, housing prices across the country, for the most part, are back on the rise once again. Um, This all leads me to the point of, I think that we are still... We need to start looking at the supply side. I'm not a huge supply side kind of guy. I think that I was always for the demand side, but we, we've definitely tried a couple policies. Uh, and so now it's about hitting the supply side, which 
as we're seeing now, housing starts are rolling over. Um, we're on pace for about 212,000 units this year, which is well down from 271,000 back in 2021. Obviously, as higher interest rates start to bite, the one thing, there was a really good research paper out this week from the Canadian Center for Economic Analysis, uh, to which they were able to derive that on a $940,000 new home in Ontario, you should expect to pay 288000 of that, 940 will be in taxes. So basically, essentially on a million dollar home, you're, you're looking at 30% of the price of new housing in Ontario is actually just taxes. And then that's, and you're paying that after you've already paid whatever 50% of your marginal income in taxes. Right. And there's 15% sales to I've been anyway. Well, I just like to thank David Rosenberg for listening to the Looney Hour. Because <laughs> like, we were talking about this a year ago. Um, and so there you go, boys. Every once in a while, we get something right. And I think it's, we should be, I mean, it's a shame really, but what, what, I mean, we're watching just, we're, this is going to come out in the wash. I think that's a very polite way of saying, it. I think there's going to be an enormous backlash to this. Um, and that's what David Rosenberg was alluding to. And I agree with him. It's the, it's crazy, but like that's the housing, new housing supply is the highest taxed, uh, sector in Ontario. And it's crazy. But like, so you're taxing this, like usually like, okay, we want more housing, but you're taxing it like cigarettes. And <laughs> the lo logic would suggest that if you want more of something, you incentivize it generally through like, you know, what, what are we doing right now for EVs? Right. we want more green electric vehicles. So we're bringing in all these like crazy rebates and giving Volkswagen, Subsidies. A, giving Volkswagen a whole bunch of money. And then on the real estate side, like, well, it's interesting. I just think that, and this is why I continue to come back to, I think housing uh, is completely broken. And it's just the system is broken and it's not something that you can just reverse in, in 12 months. Well, and like two things. First of all, it you can make an argument that it has become a bit of an addiction. In, in, oh, for yeah, sure it has. Tongue, tongue in cheek way. Uh, and even less importantly, you know, the, the description you gave of all, Steve of all the new taxes and not taxes, sorry, the demand side policies yeah the new policies to try to fix things you know I, I, you must rhyme off at least six or seven of them and all i'm thinking my head my my god we're turning into europe it, it sounds like a european fantasy land thing that, that that's happening here it, it's embarrassing it's because uh, any industry you shouldn't let's put this another way government exists just just Deprive basic opportunities for the private sector to go out and, and do its thing. And, you know, maybe that's right or wrong in, in some markets. Maybe I'm not in, introducing this correctly, but as soon as governments at all levels are starting to implement multiple new policies to try to address an imbalance, you know, something's completely wrong, right? And, you know, obviously that's the mess that we have here right now, not just in BC, but I'm sure it's elsewhere. Well, again, just to, it's a good point, Keith. And just to kind of round out this whole thing is we, so you're, 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 you've introduced all these demand side levers to basically slow demand. Yet the one thing you did not slow was, a, was the immigration side, which yeah. has allowed a, a million people into the country in 2022. It's like, I just, you just can't, you can't make this stuff up. It's really just like, Unbelievable. Keeps going back. I always like to break things up, really make it really simple. You know, is is you know, is is there a disease? Are you looking at the disease or the illness or the symptom? 
right? And a really tight housing market is a symptom of, of something else that was established right. to create that. And and new policies that come on for everything, it, it seemingly seems like it's always you to treat the symptom. And, you know, that's... Uh, anyway, that's the world we're in here. Uh, well, I, yeah, and I guess it gets back to the point of if... Because people ask this question, like, well, if we start lowering taxes on let's say housing because everyone's become so the governments have become addicted to it as well uh, in terms of tax revenues you got to generate those tax revenues from somewhere else so where are you going to raise them are you going to raise them on income taxes i mean those are pretty high already so it seems like the only way to i have an idea i have an idea you could spend less money (laughs) just just throwing just throwing that out there while i avoid the tomatoes from certain portion of the population i'm just saying you could just run smaller budget deficits what is now what did we conclude recently rich that the canadian governments at all levels is now is it 53 54 percent of the overall economy or was it I mean, higher? Yeah, I, I mean, it depends on how you calculate it, et cetera, et cetera. But oh, it's, public it's sector high job growth? No, well, public everything. sector job growth has been out of control, but the gross, I mean, the the total spending as a percentage of GDP. I Sorry, Keith, you, you got me. I can't remember exactly the number, but it, yeah. it's it's very high. Okay, okay. Well, what else anyway, is, there you go. Uh, we got housing done. There's we your sad that story for the week. <laughs> housing, let's all forget about it. We're all screwed at the end of the day. Um <laughs> <laughs> that's good let's jump into the fed because i think that's like the big one here um i know our audience probably wants us to to do a bit of a deep dive into that so um i don't know you guys probably paid more attention to than i did but obviously the fed came out raised rates 25 basis points kind of as expected the language certainly changed in my opinion my conclusion anyways was that essentially i think moving forward here we're on pause um, from here on out, not saying that, you know, a pause does not mean a cut next month. Um, I know the markets are, are pricing in a cut, I think as soon as what, September. Um, no, even might- earlier, sorry to interrupt you, but even in, uh, in, in, by July, there's a 50, there's a 48.3% chance of a cut in July. <laughs> I <laughs> sorry, mean, Keith, Keith I don't sorry. know if you want to chime in on that. That seems optimistic in my view, but, uh, you're a fed watcher more so than I am. Uh, I haven't even checked it here. Let's see. Get that expensive Bloomberg machine running. Yeah, yeah. No, Rich is right. By July, they're expecting a 25-point cut and then another 25 in September. So, you know, by uh, January of 24, the market is pricing in uh, one and a quarter points knocked off. Okay. So they have to say, well, yeah. Here, So let's go into it. Uh, I, I'll, I'll go second. Rich, you go ahead. Oh, you, 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 you bugger. I was, I was, well, I just think what, what I thought was a couple of really interesting was that the, in the, in the statement, which was quite a short one, thank goodness. Cause I remember Janet Yellen used to go on and on and on in the monetary policies, the FOMC statement, which you can look up, everybody can see it. And Ben Bernanke's during the, the crisis, that was, those was ridiculously long, but um, Powell to his credit is very short. But what I thought was really interesting is the first line of the second paragraph, it says the US banking system is sound and resilient. And I just think what I thought was interesting was, you know, uh, doth protest too much is what I would say about that. I mean, the reality is, is 
um, they, they're making an emphasis. Their their emphasis on we they have a dual mandate, so inflation and full employment. And the funny thing is, is, I think in some ways, I think that they've actually breached both of them. And so that's why I think that. So you could say, well, what's the inflation? You could say, Rich, inflation PCE is still well above target. That's fine, but it is falling, even though I think it's going to be materially above target for a while. And then the dual mandate um, is, you know, there's they're waiting, I think, for the labor market to to break. And I think that that's basically going to force them into sort of a policy mistake. And that policy mistake is a function of the fact that the banking sector is under a lot of stress. And the reason it's a lot under a lot of stress is because the inversion of the yield curve. So the short end of the yield curve is much, much higher than the long end of the yield curve, which basically destroys banks, basically. It doesn't necessarily destroy banks like JP Morgan, who that have huge wealth management businesses. We'll talk about TD a little bit later or investment banking businesses that generate lots of revenue, but it does dest- destroy the, the profitability of these regional banks. And that's sort of what we saw this week. Um, Keith, you, you go now and, and we'll, we'll jump back into it later. But I thought that was my original mandate, uh, original point. I thought it was interesting that they, they talked about the well, banks. Just to add to that, Rich, would you not say there's like essentially a third mandate of financial stability? Well, the joke was always the third mandate was the S&P 500. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, I submit to you that not much has changed that they target the S and P five hundred. But on that, in that vein, the S and P five hundred is at what forty one hundred. It's actually hasn't is not is actually pretty high given the stresses we've seen. The market's up like six percent this year. You know, tech. I've totally got this wrong. Tech is up like eighteen percent. Banks obviously down twenty nine percent year to date. So, you know, if that third mandate is live, then, you know, those rate cuts are not coming. Keith, I don't know if you have something to add. Yeah, I don't know where to start here. Um, so the I mean, he, he had to make a comment about the banking system because, you know, there's, you know, a few banks are failing and things like that. So he had to do that. But but to, to preface all this, I thought this was one of his best uh, pressers that 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 he's done in his career. I, I thought it was just outstanding. And um, so he had to come out and he didn't spend a lot of time on it. He said, guys, listen, the banking sector or system, it's strong. Move on. We're not going to dwell on this. Because as you know, if he kept talking and talking about it, all of a sudden it's like, oh, uh oh, it, it is pretty bad. You know, it, it is going to go down. Uh, so myself personally, I, I I don't share nearly the same amount of pessimism or, or fear about the U.S. banking system as what is you know being communicated sometimes. And I think people need to realize and understand as well, you cannot compare the U.S. banking system to any other banking system in the world. You cannot compare it to the Canadian system or the European or Aussie or British or anything like that. The, the American banking system... It's incredibly complicated because you have like the shadow banking system attached to it as well. Like the private equity guys are out there. Um, I think Apple, for example, using this as an example, I may not be right with the numbers. They're probably the biggest money market investor in the world. I mean, their cash holdings, it's it's enormous. They're able to lend out more money than most regional banks themselves, for example. Uh, so we have a lot of this this stuff going on. So he did come out with that, but we'll we'll jump back over to the banking stuff in a minute. But overall, um, he, he was hawkish. I mean, uh, he was not dovish at all. And uh, he made two very specific comments. One was in general. You know, he said, hey, rate cuts are not being considered 
Because that was one of the questions that came up. You know, I think about cutting rates in June. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. We are not cutting rates. That has that wasn't even part of the conversation coming up. So he, you know, he he stopped that dead in his tracks. And then the other part, well, I thought it was a great, a great quote as well. He said, um, he said that right now there, there's so much ex, uh, sorry, excess demand in the labor market. So if your mandate is to control in inflation, which is all they can do is control demand, they can't control the supply side. Uh, you know, they, they really want job losses. That's what they want, because that's what will cause the economy, you know, to come off. And he's just, he's telling us again, he's very clear that guys, the economy is still strong. There's there's lots of jobs available for people who want them and, and stuff like that. So I, I thought it was, I thought it was a very good meeting. I was quite happy with it. There was no wishy-washiness about it at all. And I, I thought markets reacted you know, appropriately. Uh, and then we'll go back into, you know, I, I didn't realize, Rich and Steve, until you guys mentioned a few minutes ago that rate cuts are being priced in going out. And after seeing that right now, I mean, that that tells me if rate cuts are coming, it's because there is a crisis. So maybe this does snowball a, a little bit further, what we have there. But what else do you have there, uh, Rich? Well, I was we just going to say, I mean, the, the Fed, ahead, the Fed never, sorry, sorry. I was going to say the Fed never preemptively cuts rates. I think that that's the sort of the, mis, I don't know if that's the mistake or whatever. That's the sort of, I mean, I think that, you know, if there really was a banking crisis, I think the Fed will be, well, will, I mean, I mean, that's a big, sorry, banking crisis is really strong. I think 2008 was a banking crisis. The entire banking system was undercapitalized. It was totally screwed. Uh, now you have a situation where there's two sort of separate things going on. One is there's the large systemically important banks are actually undercapitalized. I saw a number, I'm not sure if this is right, but I saw like the top 25 banks or whatever have a loan to value ratio. So the amount of leverage sort of like number loans over the, um, sorry, loans over deposits, excuse me, I screwed that up, a loan to deposit ratio of less than 60, so 0.6. So that means they have an incredible amount of ability to absorb any kind of negative shocks that they have. But then you have a different part of the, the banking system. Remember, there's 4,200, 4,500 banks in the United States, and there's a bunch of these regional banks. And I think that those are the ones that are under a significant amount of pressure due to, obviously, their exposure to the real estate market, to the exposure to MBS, to the fact that they have to compete with the money markets um, at the um, offering four and five percent on um, you know whether and and the fact that their loan books basically are being marked down as a function of yields going up right when yields go up bond prices go down and so I think that there's the and and so what I think that that's where maybe crisis is the wrong thing but there, I think that the regional banks are under a lot of pressure and I think that in order to deal with that you need to have the yield curve flatten out. So you need to allow regional banks to make more money as opposed to no money whatsoever and bleeding money. And so that's where I think that that's why I think, Keith, that the yield curve, uh, excuse me, that the, the Fed fund futures are pricing in cuts. Yeah, Keith, to your point there, you're talking about Apple. They have a they have a high interest savings account now that yields four, over 4%, which is crazy. It's, yeah, there's a lot of cash out there. I, I sort of disagree with with what Rich was was framing there then, because the risk right now, or, or there's a fear in the marketplace in the banking sector. And you're absolutely right; it is very different than what happened oh eight oh nine. That was a bad loan problem, right? Loans on the books were worth nearly as much as what people thought. 
the what's happening today it's the contagion it's the fear you're you're fearful of not getting your deposit back so that's why money is leaving you know the small and regional banks and even the big guys are losing money and they'd rather park in a money market and so for people that may not realize uh what money market is it's it's very short term borrowings by very large entities so let's just say um Say Amazon, for example, they might borrow money for 30 days. So they say they borrow 50 million bucks as an example. So that's a $50 million piece of commercial paper that matures in 30 days. Uh, Rich is running a money market fund. Like he'll buy some of that. He knows 30 days from now, he'll get his money back because it's, it's good credit. And he maybe he'll earn, you know, three and a half, four percent, something like that yield on it. Investors are more comfortable investing in a fund that that is stuffed with these 30-day paper from companies and, and other structured entities, stuff like that, instead of having it on the balance sheet of a bank. And, and that's that's what's happening here right now. And I think it was it was the last week or a week before, I forget. Remember we, we started talking about how when, when loans are coming off, sorry, when deposits are coming off the books at banks, it means there's less money available for lending. And, you know, we talked about, hey, we could get this credit crunch coming up here. And and I, that's my fear right now. That's where we're going. The Fed did not talk about that at all, because in their mind, even Powell said, hey, I, I think we're going to have a nice, real nice, cozy, soft landing. It's going to be great. Uh, the risk to that is that he's wrong. And it's because, you know, the credit is not able to be extended through the system. But there are other ways to get credit and that like big companies can get it and the smaller guys can't. But uh, I don't know if that makes a bit more sense or did that confuse things more. No, I mean, we've chatted about this before, right? Which is like the, you know, you think about the regional banking system in the U.S., Obviously, it's much, much different than what we're used to here in Canada, uh, but they are responsible for for lending to a lot of small, medium businesses, including a lot of commercial real estate. Uh, of course, we know commercial real estate to begin with, I think, is already under a lot of pressure. Um, there's been very, very little transactions. We know what's happening in the office space, for example, like that's going to like, I think what's going to be a, a pretty large restructuring. And obviously just, you know, these, all these loans that are coming up for, for refinance or for renewal, um, you tack on the credit tightening from these regional banks and you can just see like this, this credit crunch that is likely coming down the pipe. Um, yeah. And it's very different than, again, like not that the banks have already made all these loans and they're going bad, but what's happening is that there's been a lot of excess savings accumulated. And then people now are fearful they won't get that back. So it's coming out of the system. I'll give you like two other stories from what I had this week. Uh, one, one guy I know who's pretty piped in into that network, he said uh, last Friday um, in commercial real estate, so in, in, we call it Cree, that's what we're looking at. Um, Friday, the loan to value was 65%, a new issuance going out. And Monday, it was at 45%. And the, my Tuesday, there were no deals being made. Can you, how, there does she that, was. how does that work? Can you walk? Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So let's just say uh, I wanted to borrow. Um, you know, it's your typical loan to value. So if I want to borrow, say, a hundred million to build a, a shopping mall, say the shopping mall is going to cost a hundred million. On Friday, I was able to borrow sixty-five million. I see. To, okay. to build it. On Monday, I was only able to borrow forty-five million. On Tuesday, I couldn't get a dime. 
like none. And that's liquidity, right? Like money just just dried up immediately. And then I had another conversation with with uh, somebody I know, and, and they're involved with one of, one of the larger firms. And, um, you know, they said uh, they had to roll over close to $2 billion a few weeks ago. And uh, they were concerned if they were going to be able to borrow the full two. And they were really concerned about what the price was going to be for it. In the end, they were able to borrow three, so it was oversubscribed. So $3 billion came into this deal they offered. And it was at the same pricing they had from a few months earlier. So that's an example where, you know, there's always good deals to be had. And like we're global macro, and that, that's what we do. But there are a lot of, you know, bottom-up equities, you know, stock pickers and, and bond pickers. One of the best bond managers I know, very small guys. Uh, they're based offshore. They probably have a hundred million dollar fund that they manage, but it's just all bottom up stuff, right? And they they find cool things to buy. Uh, but that's an example, you know, there as well. And and then the, the final thing for people to think about: say, well, how does that happen? How can they raise so much money? Um, to just think about anyone who's in a pension plan of any kind. So say it's a defined benefit pension plan, or it's a defined contribution plan. So, you know, every two weeks, you know, your money's come off your paycheck or every month, and the company might match it and stuff. That there's always money coming into the market, both on the equity and fixed income side. So, like one of one of my good friends, he manages European credit uh, with State Street over in London. And I said, okay, walk me through your day, like or your week. How do you manage, you know, European credit? And he says, Keith, it's pretty, it's pretty easy, actually. He said, I sit there and $25 million shows up, and I just call the brokers and see if they have any new issuance. And that's it. I said, Do you ever have to like sell something because you're worried about it? He said, No, there's always money coming in at maturity. We're getting our money back. And you know, that's that's the life of, of the bond world, the fixed income world. It's not that hard, really, in some ways. And it's kind of disappointing when you hear that's how it works, <laughs> you know, because, you know, they say, oh, the bond guys are the smartest guys in the world. And, uh, you know, some of them are, and some of them just, just sit at their desk. They wait for the email to pop up. That sounds like a pretty good job. It wouldn't be a good job. Hey, but Unless you the up... bond market explodes, then, it, then it's kind of uncomfortable. Keith, you did bring up a good point on the, uh, the commercial real estate side, just in terms of like a loan-to-value perspective. Um, you know, so like in the industry, like we'll call these like basically cash calls. Um, so, and you know, I can give you examples, like we're actually, you know, I'm hearing this at least anecdotally, uh, in the Canadian housing space. So we talk a lot about supply and we need to build more. And, and as you know, we can see in the CMHC data that housing starts are rolling over. Well, a lot of this, again, to your point is you are getting these cash calls because interest rates have gone up so much. Uh, you know, for example, a developer that said initially was thinking, okay, I'm going to build this, uh, you know, condo building here and I'm going to need to borrow $20 million from the bank to build it. Well, now the bank might only give you, you know, $15 million to build it. And so you have to basically do a cash call to your investors. You have to basically go out and find that $5 million in, in equity to put into the deal. So a lot of these developers having to put more equity into deals to make them uh, financially feasible in the bank size. And so this is where we're seeing a lot of deals. Like it is, everyone's purses are a little bit tighter, right? So it's not, it's not necessarily that easy to go out and raise that $5 million. Uh, and so you're seeing a lot of these projects are actually, they are being canceled. They are being put on pause. Um, and I think 
I think housing starts and construction is a, a very significant portion of the economy, particularly in the Canadian economy. So to your point regarding you know loan to values, banks getting tight, I think that's where you're seeing more of the tightness in credit is is on the commercial side, like I said, on the residential side, and I'm not finding credit to be that tight. I mean, like another, again, like talk about like the, the system is incredibly flexible, fluid, it's always the opportunist out there and what you may not like that you have, somebody else will, will take it on. So an example of that was this week, the story was uh, Ontario teachers. Uh, you, you probably saw that story floated out there. How um, those guys have been in the news they, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you're that big, you're involved with a lot of things, right? Uh, but anyway, the story was like, they were looking to buy some loan portfolios from the banks. And they didn't specify which banks and stuff like that. And, you know, so the question is like, why are the banks selling? And why are the teachers buying, right? And, and the answer is that they're both right. It's, it's yeah. a classic trade where both sides can benefit from it. So let's just say, Rich, you're, uh, you're one of the big banks and, you know, you, you got some smelly stuff in your loan book, you know, from Kids Radio. You? Yeah. <laughs> and you want to get rid of it, right? You know, I want to I unload some of this stuff. Um, because you're just concerned about it. So as soon as you unload it, you know, you, you get marked on it, whatever, but it then frees you up. It gives you more capacity to do other things, right? As, as opposed, like, for example, that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, pretty truthful and factual about the European banking system because they never did unload all the bad loans, right? They were, they, they weren't able to embrace new opportunities. They needed new private capital to come in to do that. And, Private capital wouldn't come in because of all the, the bad stuff that was still in the system. But if if you you know, Rich, if you're able to sell, you know, some loans you're concerned about, uh, that gives you new capacity to do whatever you want with them as a bank, because you want to optimize your profits and, and gains and minimize losses. Steve, you're you're the teacher's pension plan. And you, you know, you don't have a quarterly time horizon. You know, you're looking at generate multi-generational type investments. You're saying, yeah, I'll take Rich. I'll take that loan portfolio from you. Uh, we can absolutely weather, you know, one, two, three years of volatility in this. We don't even really have to mark it, and we think the marks on it are pretty fair with the price on it. So it's a win-win trade for both for both sides. And as well with with pension funds as well, people don't realize it's not always the return that they're focused on. They're looking at the duration because they want to match the, the assets with with liabilities for payouts coming. But that's an example of where. Hey, the market might be getting a bit funny out there. Banks, they might want to unload some bad loans. And yeah, there's a there's a buyer out there, you know, willing to take it. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Rich, do you have any comments on that? Well, I just want to, I mean, just if we could step back a tiny, tiny bit, I just want to say it's all a little bit circular. I mean, Keith used the word fluid and flexible, and but it's also a little bit circular in a sense, because, you know, the Fed is waiting for the labor market to capitulate. I'm of the view that the labor market is very, very strong. We talked about demographics. We talked about skills mismatch. We talked about low population growth, et cetera. But, you know, the banking sector is getting squeezed. And if you look at things like the senior loan officer survey, uh, there's obviously credit standards are tightening. The demand is 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 falling to a degree. Spreads are, are high. And so what you're basically seeing, and then that usually tends to lead some kind of credit creation number. The rub is, is that, 
SMEs make up, so uh, small and medium enterprises in America, in the UK, probably Canada too, make up something like 99% of all companies. That's not a very useful statistic. But what is a useful statistic is depending on the jurisdiction, you employ something like 60 to 70% of all people, all people in the workforce, excuse me. And so you have a situation where, you know, like Keith has mentioned before, that those SMEs cannot go to bond markets and issue paper in the same way as Apple or Microsoft or, you know, Exxon or what have you. They go to the local bank or even the large banks and say, hi, we have these many assets. We have this much cash flows. Can we bar, can, can we open up a credit line for $50 million or $20 million or $100,000 or, or, you know, 5 million bucks or whatever it is to either build a new, uh, to, that could be working capital. It could be operational. It could be OPEX. So, um, you know, it could be just operational ca- uh, capital expenditure, or it could be brand new. I want to build a new building. So the trick is, is when you have a contraction or a tightening in that credit space from the banks, that can and does feed through into SMEs willingness to engage new people, um, e.g. hiring new people or keep those people on board. And in the worst case scenario, as we've all witnessed, and or most of us listening to this have been around, they contract their credit severely or just say, full stop, we're not going to lend. And companies eventually, SMEs are eventually forced to either slow down their operations and contract their operations. Whereas a Microsoft or a large, let's say a company trade on the S&P 500 can go still go to the market and go to a pension fund and, and issue paper. And so I know it's a bit circular, but it's important. I think people understand sort of the flow through and the link between banking uh, banking credit standards, spreads, tightening, all that stuff, and SMEs, and then back to the Fed, and then and back and and around and around it goes. Sorry, I know, again, circular, but I think it's really that's an important sort of little add-on. So, Rich, Steve. just to yeah, I mean that's a good point. Just to add to that, Keith, and kind of curious your thoughts here as well, because you said you were maybe like a little bit less concerned than than what the narrative is out there. Um, you know, in the last couple of days, there's been some huge movements in some of these regional banks. You know, I know that. Uh, Powell was out saying everything's fine, nothing to worry about. But uh, so you had um, what Western Alliance, PacWest, uh, First Horizon, um, all falling. So Western Alliance down as much as sixty-two percent, triggering volatility halts. Um, PacWest down as much as sixty-one percent. You know the list. The list goes on, and of course, First Horizon, which we'll get into, uh, tumbled as much as forty percent after saying uh, TD Bank. Uh, up here in Canada has agreed to terminate um, their merger, which was agreed upon, I think, in what, February of 2022, obviously at a much higher price. What was the question? <laughs> how are you How are you interpreting this? Are you, are you concerned about the contagion that's clearly showing up in equity prices for these regional banks? First of all, I just love the whole rhyme and, you know, of all the different banks getting hurt. And uh, and then you stopped, abruptly stopped. And I, said, I was waiting for you to chime it's not in. not that many. It's not that many, I guess. You're sleeping on the job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what happens when you hit 70s, guys. You need a nap every now and then. Um, so a, a couple of things. So, so first of all, you know, I like everything gets, you know, put to the nth degree. When I said, you know, I'm not worried about the U.S. banking system, it doesn't mean I'm saying, hey, run out and buy this stuff. Okay. He's not worried uh, about it. He's got all his money tied up in them. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a big investor in bank stocks. I think people know that. Um, 
but you know, there, there are concerns happening here, absolutely. And so one of the things I've, I've talked about, and, and I'm, I've been very consistent with this, is, and, and it's, you know, it, again, it, it is what it is, but Canadians feel that, you know, Canadian banks are invincible. Like there are these amazing institutions that can always do this for, you know, years, decades on end, and they can never get hurt. So, you know, they're considered smarter or for some reason they're superior to every other banking system in the world, right? So here's, T I'm, not, I'm just picking on TD because they're in the news right now. So, you know, over a year ago, they agreed to buy, uh, is it First Horizon Bank? I think it was. First Horizon. Yeah, at, at 13 billion. That's what they valued at, right? 13 billion. And now uh, this morning, it's it, well, at open, it was worth 8 billion. The company was right, and they, they, the TD, you know, correctly they terminated the deal, right? That's that's what anybody would do, because you know you make a logical, efficient decision. Some people say, oh, you know, they're gonna pay a two hundred fifty million dollar breakup fee, but yeah, that's a lot better than you know losing you know five or six billion in valuation. Um, so it's, hey, hey, once again, Kenya banks are really smart, you know, for doing that. However, these are the same banks. Okay, the same Canadian bank, as an example, that a year ago thought it was a fantastic idea to buy you know, a, a bank. So my point is that it, it gets circular sometimes with thinking. And I'm not saying that the banks are always awesome because they're incredibly smart, complicated businesses to run. Uh, we've seen now if you do not have a very good um, you know, risk strategy put in place, you, know, you, can, you can really trip trip over things but the moment banks start to lose deposits it, it's game over right and by losing deposits it's a bank run and that that's that's what it is in the old days the bank run you know people were lined up around the corner remember northern rock back in 08 09 I keep referencing no. things from like 10 years ago. You guys are <laughs> like well, so you know. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, bank runs don't happen like that anymore. You know, people just go click, click, and the money comes come flowing out. And it it does become a bit of a contagion. So all these, you know, you know, Steve, the, the numbers you're just providing us, you know, the decline in, in equity valuations for all these banks, it, it's happening. It, it's happening out there. And maybe it gets contained very quickly. But it doesn't mean that the, the system is wrong. It just means that deposits are shifting from one place, you know, to another. And, and again, don't take that as a, you know, buy this or, or sell that. It's just an example that for, for any banking system, you know, the moment confidence declines and, you you know, you yank the money from the bank. Yeah. You know, and then it's, it's, it's a real struggle. And right now it's happening in this, you know, this one corner of, of the, uh, of the biggest banking, you know, uh, sector in, in the world, you know, for the Americans. Open the bank, open the bank. <laughs> Open the bank. <laughs> uh, Keith, what else? Bank stories. I got a ton of bank stories. Uh, yeah, another interesting thing today. Yeah. Well, you were watching the Aussie Central Bank. I don't know if you want to get into that. Uh, that yeah, just real briefly on that. So the Aussies, you know, they you know, there was, they were sort of late to the game in raising rates, and then they paused before everyone else. And then th this past week, uh, all of a sudden, they raised rates again. So completely shocked everyone. You know, there's not a lot of people, by the way, following the, the Aussie. There's not a lot of groupies for the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia, unless you're over there. But, uh, you know, they, they did shock the system when, when they did it. So the Aussie dollar immediately just, just went vertical up and, and stuff like that. 
And then naturally, then that gets, hey, if the Aussies did it, that means, hey, the Canadians, maybe they'll raise rates again. And, you know, based on the information today, I suspect it's unlikely. That's what the Bank of Canada will to do, will do. And of course, as you know, like tomorrow, new data will come out and next week, new data again. And, you know, maybe that will, you know, justify them to do something different. But the Australian story is different because they were really behind the curve relative to, to everyone else. So the interest rate differentials were widening. So, you know, they did it. Uh, and then back here in Canada, does that mean the Bank of Canada are going to hike rates coming up next month? As of right now, like my my uh, my Twinkie bet is it's no. I don't think they're raising. I don't know if Rich will say what they're going to do. I think Steve is. I think Steve sees the same thing with me that the, the real estate be. guy sees no rate hikes ever. <laughs> bad rate hikes, bad. But that was a bit of a a story this week in that you know corner of the world. There she was. I wanted to talk about. I wanted to add just a, a quick roundup on the um, on the ISM, if I if I may, because that well, was so yeah, uh, get get to the ISM, and then I I think we'll uh, we'll kind of wrap it up. But because uh, we've got um, as well something to keep keep an eye on is tomorrow is tomorrow, right? With the U.S. jobs reports coming out. Yep, non farm payrolls. Again, Keith, when are we recording this? What day is it today? He's sleeping again. Thursday. <laughs> Anyways, Rich, we record on Thursday. Yeah, we should do a non-farm payroll uh, Twinkie bet. We could do. Let's do that. Let's do that. It's been a while. I what promise. I don't even know what the are. This is not fair. You guys go first. Okay. Well, let me talk about the ISM while you look up at the estimates, and um, I think it's. I'll, I'll be quick. I think what's interesting. Okay, I, have the the... I have the estimates. I have the estimates. Go ahead. Got it. Uh, all right, all right, all right. So, um, not ISM manu- uh, manufacturing PMI, the best diffusion index in the world, uh, basically stopped falling. Now it's a uh, forty-seven point one in the U.S. Um, and below fifty, as we uh, t- know here, and if you're a regular listener, is uh, still in contractionary territory. Well, what was interesting is that it it just stopped falling. I think it's always about direction and pace. Um, a couple of good points I think were the new orders um, and new export orders continued to, to like to trend higher, which I think is important. Employment also sort of jumped back above fifty, so it's. Um, so basically now it's an expansionary territory, which I think was good. Um, again, it's still a negative. So, but I thought that was really important. One thing I thought was really interesting is prices paid. So a while ago, everyone was obsessed with his prices paid um, part of the diffusion index. So basically how much prices are going up or down. And then they, they obviously, you know, they talk about that in the comments and that's what I wanted to read. So it was just pricing pressures continue to plague daily operations after consecutive years of inflation and aggressive pricing. We are starting to see resistance and willingness to pass on uh, to end consumers. So it's interesting that you know pricing pressures are starting to rise, but the, um, but the companies are less able to pass on those prices to their consumers. And so that to me f- flows into the margin story of a lot of these companies. We know that margins basically across the board are all are coming down. Obviously, not necessarily the same for different sectors. So margins for tech companies, which are very, very, very high, have come down a lot. Margins for energy companies, for example, have gone up a lot. And then for consumer staples, they've been quite flat. But anyways, I thought that was sort of an interesting wrinkle. Um, the thing that that really shocked me, or didn't shock me, but that stood out on the services sector side, right? There's non-manufacturing, which is services, and there's manufacturing. So on the services sector, um, we got... Uh, 
uh, PMI rose to 51.9. But under the hood, I thought what was really interesting was the business activity. So in this diffusion index, you've got sort of the 10 different components and they aggregate them. And that's where I saw a continued downturn in the services sector. So remember, the services sector is a lion's share of the U.S. economy. It's also in same same in Canada, same in Europe, et cetera. And that's where I thought was really interesting was the service, the business activity component really, really fell down. You say, Richard, how does that make sense? Well, some of the other components improved, but definitely there's some slowing there. And I just thought that was worth sharing with you guys and to give you an opportunity to make fun of me about using the diffusion index again. So there you go. There she was. The yeah, the, the, the diffusion index. <laughs> All right, let's square uh, this. Let's square okay. this. Pat. Let's square this. Yeah, let's, so here's let, let's let's go here. Okay, here. so you need to know the estimate first, though. Before oh, hold on, let me let me let me open this thing up. So you had the 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 jolts data came out a couple of days ago, uh, mm -hmm. suggesting the number of available positions uh, decreased for a third straight month. Um, you know, essentially suggesting some weakness in the in the labor market. Um, now, Keith, as your question is, um, so Friday's job report, which comes out tomorrow, as of this recording, uh, is currently forecast to show employers added 180,000 jobs in April. So that's the apparently that's the estimate. What was it last month? Don't ask. Don't have a Bloomberg term. <laughs> okay, I'll check quickly. It was two thirty-six. So two hundred thirty-six thousand last month. I think I won last month. You did this, yeah, because I'm pretty good with these things. Uh, yeah, I'll yeah. go. Do you want me to go first or last? You want He's got to go first. You won. He's got a Bloomberg terminal. <laughs> you won last time. Tell you, you the first. future. <laughs> tell you the future. Okay, I'll go first. Okay, uh, the estimates at one eighty. I think the number is going to come in at uh, three thirty-five. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. Huge. Um, all right. Um, I'll, I'll go first. Um, age before beauty, I guess. Right, Steve? Um, uh, okay. I'll say, oh, that's screwed up my, I think I'll, there'll be 227. Are we writing this down? Someone's got to write this down. I'm writing Oh man. Okay. I'm going to go uh, 179. I like it. Like Man, we're, we are all over the place. We're like stats, cans, job numbers. That's right. Don't you love like market psychology here? So I yeah. just set the bar really high and Rich is like, oh, I got to I gotta catch up. Yeah, you screwed, you totally screwed me up. We, we got to do a blind. Well, it's interesting, so just guys, like one little... Oh, sorry, go ahead. This is a lot more important. Do you, so on the, you guys follow the Babylon Bee? You guys do that? Yeah, of course. Great Twitter Steve? follow. I don't, know, I don't know what that is. <laughs> It's just, they just mock everything. That That's what it is. And they do it a way that it looks real. Anyway, they had, uh, what was the American politician, AOC? I, I don't know her. Alexandra something Cortez. Ocasio, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they had her on The Price is Right. You know The uh -oh. Price is Right. You have, to, you have to guess what the price is of stuff, what it cost. Yeah. And her answer for everything was free. <laughs> 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 Rich, I think you guys, I'd love to see you and her on a date. Just uh, opposites to attract. Who knows? Opposites attract. You're not bad looking. Oh, man. You know? I that mean, she's a very good speaker. I disagree with basically everything she has to say, but she's a very good orator. You gotta have a spicy relationship, though. You gotta give credit where credit's due. She's a good speaker. Okay, check out the Babylon. Hey, he's coming around. AOC on the price is right. <laughs> it's really funny. Go. It's good AOC, stuff. if you're looking for a date.
Oh my goodness. Hit up the, uh, she's hit up the Tom Brady of Mac. She lives in New York and she lives. That's right. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I think that's a good, good spot to wrap it up. Uh, as always, we appreciate your guys' support. Uh, look for the jobs numbers. Uh, whoever's listening to this probably already has. Them. So there you go. We'll find out who's right and who's wrong. Twinkies on the line for next week. And we'll see you next week.